9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from New York City and also coming to you from the vicinity, of course, is our Thursday co-host, Ryan Goodman. Hi, Ryan. How are you? Hi, David. Pretty well. And Max, are you in New York City? I am actually about as far away from New York as you can get and still be in the U.S. of A. since I am in Hawaii as we speak. Oh, wow. Okay, well, we're not going to be speaking to Max today because we're all so jealous of where he is. But as you can hear, we have uh, one of our regular friends, Max Boot of Council on Foreign Relations. We also have Lena Wen, who is a professor of public health and an emergency room doctor and was the commissioner of public health in Baltimore. And between the last time she did this podcast, like, you know, a few hours ago, and now she managed to have a baby and all over the media. Uh, congratulations, Lena. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be back with you. And um, unlike last time, when I had to begin with the caveat of, I may have to leave any time to give birth. Yeah. <laughs> this time, it's, I may have to leave any time to feed the baby, but it's uh, more manageable. It's okay. And we now have a standing policy that anyone in the broadcast who has to leave to give birth is as clearance to do that. So uh, we've moved ahead. And of course, we are also joined by our friend David from of The Atlantic. Um, hi, David. How are you? A pleasure to be here. So we've got a full house, uh, four of the smartest people I know to talk about a very complicated situation. And I thought the best place to begin um, would actually be to turn to Ryan, because Ryan at Just Security did something quite remarkable this week, which was compile a timeline of this crisis that is the most detailed timeline. And I thought maybe, Ryan, you could give three or four of your headline conclusions from having compiled that timeline, and then I'll move around each one of you guys and get your reactions. Uh, sure, thanks, David. Um, so I guess the one piece of the timeline that's maybe obvious to many uh, listeners is that it definitely demonstrates the um, lapse of time on the part of the administration when they privately have a lot of information coming in about the threat of the pandemic and don't do anything about it. Just a, a huge amount of time lost on, in terms of the internal public health officials trying to convince the president. But I thought other things that came to me that weren't so obvious were uh, ways in which it wasn't just like the hashtag 70 days, which refers to the Washington Post story about the lost time, but rather more of a cover-up, more of a deliberate attempt on the part of senior officials to actually go out on the public airwaves and say nothing to see here, especially late February, right after the CDC director had admitted publicly that people should prepare to have their lives uh, seriously disrupted. Trump is then telling um, Azar, that Secretary Azar, that he's worried that will shock the stock markets. And then lo and behold, within just a very short few days, Trump goes out and says, oh, it's going to be down to zero deaths. Wilbur Ross goes out says this is actually going to be good for the economy. Larry Kudlow goes out and says um, uh, it's not airtight, but we, are, we have this under control. It's pretty airtight. Um, and that's uh, remarkable uh, when you actually look at the timeline of what they knew 
at the particular time and what uh, Senator Burr knew specifically in that uh, particular four-day window. So I think those were some of the things that were revealed to me um, that I hadn't seen before. And then uh, we got a bunch of reader comments in. Like one reader uh, said to us, actually, look at all the rallies that Trump does in February um, after he's been told about the gravity of the threat to American lives and has all these rallies time and again with thousands of people. So we actually added, that was one of the many pieces that we added. Uh, Somebody also told us about uh, something that happened in the Canadian health system. In December, they got word that uh, of the pan, of the of this uh, strange flu coming out of Wuhan, they contacted their uh, colleagues in China and they immediately ordered a massive increase of PPE for their staff. Just showing you what you could do when you have a competent uh, government. So those were things that I just were somewhat new to me, and even putting together the timeline, I thought were somewhat revelatory. So. Lena, what's your reaction to that, to the timeline from the perspective of a public health professional and a physician? It's very disappointing to hear this. Um, You know, there's, it's, I think for any of these situations, it's easy to play armchair quarterback and to say, oh, well, had we known differently, here's what we would have done. But now it turns out that we did actually know differently. And then we look at, for example, the fact that South Korea had their first case the same day as the U.S. and looking to see how they immediately sprung into action and implemented widespread testing and tracing and looking to see where that got them as opposed to where we are now. Um, I mean, we have our own counterfactual. I realize that South Korea has different dynamics and demographics and, and situation, but I think looking back now, we can see how many times we should have intervened sooner. And then looking at the human toll, I mean, literally the lives lost and the numbers of people who are affected. I mean, one could actually make the argument that had we done that widespread testing and contact tracing earlier, that we could still be in the containment phase. We only, you know, all these measures that we have with mitigation, that's a blunt instrument, right? Social distancing and locking down society is a blunt instrument that you have to use when there is community transmission to the point that you can no longer control. If we were able to stick to containment, if we could identify individuals who were infected and trace their contacts and isolate them and quarantine their contacts, if we could have done that, we could have actually prevented everything else from occurring. And not only would we have saved a lot of lives, but we would not have to lock down society like this. And so looking at the reporting of this timeline just makes me extremely disappointed in our government. Um, If they didn't know, that's one thing. But now that we can see that they knew, then this is really the cost of inaction. Right. And one of the studies that's come out this week is one that shows that had they acted two weeks earlier, 90% 90% of the deaths wouldn't have happened. Uh, and I, you know, I, it begs a question, and, and when I go to David now and to Max, you might want to address it. Um, we, we have a death toll. We're just about to pass 35,000 now in the death toll. Uh, if it hits 60,000, the 90% number is, is 54,000. So that's the number of people who died in the Vietnam War. And it's a, it's a consequence of a choice that was made, a two-week delay. We also have, in the course of the past four weeks, lost 22 million jobs, which is the number of jobs 
that were created since the 2008 crisis. And they were lost in four weeks. And you have to ask yourself if we had acted earlier, if we had tested more ubiquitously, or if we had programs, programs like they have, David, in, in, in Canada and elsewhere in Europe, where the government is supplying substantial portions of the uh, income of those who they are asking not to work for the benefit of the public, um, would that social catastrophe and economic catastrophe have happened? David, let me go to you first. You had a terrific piece, which I encourage everybody to go look to, uh, on April 7th in The Atlantic called This is Trump's Fault. Uh, it says the president is failing and Americans are paying for his failures. Uh, how do you, you know, uh, connect that to what we've just heard? Well, let me pick up on Ryan's timeline and, and your question. The thing that as I went through the timeline, and I, mine was not as detailed as, as Ryan's, but it had the same basic grammar to it, is just the sheer dumbness of this plot. Um, I mean, you can understand if you're Richard Nixon and it's June of 1972 and your burglars are caught. Um, you think, you know, if I can just cover this up till November. I don't need to do, obviously, I can't cover it up forever, but I have to get through the next few months and then I'm reelected and then then I'll come up with my, my plan B and something, it, it will work. So there are the Trump people through February of 2020 and their plan is let us cover this up for three more weeks. What's the upside here? Because People are going to go get sick. Eventually, they will discover that every when I, when I, everything that you're saying is lying. And, and when I say eventually, I mean in March. So what have you bought? What, what, how is this worth it to you? And when you ask that question, you instantly have to understand there wasn't a plan here. This is, this is not driven. And this is um, by some um, evil, but uh, smart, but evil scheme. This is driven by the president's psychological abnormalities. And the main thesis of the, my This is Trump's Fault article is that this whole administration has been deformed by the fact that everyone's primary concern inside the government is to manage the president's ego, but he, to manage his ego within the shortest possible attention span, that he just needs good news today. Um, and the fact that it will be worse news tomorrow, well, that's tomorrow. He needs good news today. Your job is to not to bring him bad news today. And, and the result was just to make Trump feel a little bit better for a few more hours. All of this was unleashed. Um, last point on this. Uh, uh, February 28th, the president had his second last rally. And this, this is the rally at which he used his Democrats' new hoax phase. But when you read the, the rally transcript in its entirety, through the sort of the swamp and stew and mud of Trump's brain processes, you can see fragments where he's received a briefing that points to the, prob the imminent probability of 35 to 40,000 deaths. Um, and he keeps alluding to it. He said, they say 35, I mean, in a very fragmentary way, they say 35, but so far there have been zero. But that number 35 is in his head, um, that he's heard it, and he's arguing with himself, and he doesn't know what to do. So uh, thank you. And, 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 you know, Max, you've been writing about the same things in your columns in the Washington Post, which I encourage everybody to go and look. One of the ones, uh, I, th I think two columns ago was, you know, the second most dangerous contagion in America's conservative irrationality. It gets us to a point, right, which is um, David talks about the dumbness and, and, and we've talked about the timeline a little bit, but we haven't made every mistake we can make yet. 
there are still new mistakes that we can make. And of course, one of the biggest mistakes would be to open everything up too soon. Now, there was news on that today. The president, you know, um, had a conversation essentially with with the governors and he said, here's our plan. Um, You handle it from here. I mean, you know, after the whole week of, well, I'm going to invoke this and I have the power to do that and so forth. Essentially, the plan of the president is you, you governors can make your own decisions. Now, one of the reasons he's saying that is he has no choice. But another reason he's saying it is he knows a bunch of Republican governors are going to take the conservative line and open up soon. You know, that they're going to do the conservative I mean, the, the word just doesn't, it's lost all meaning in this, right? But they're going to do the, the GOP party thing. And, you know, they're going to they're gonna open up. They're going to interact. They don't care if you, you know, I mean, Dr. Oz says, well, only 2 to 3% of kids will die. What's the big deal? That's, it, he called it an appetizing scenario. Um, so, you know, it's quite possible, isn't it, that the, the worst mistakes have yet to be made. Well, sadly, I, you know, you can't rule that out. And in fact, I think we are, as we speak, making yet another major mistake, which is that, you know, the consensus of experts is that in order to be able to reopen safely at some point in the future, we need a massive ramp up of testing. We need to know how much COVID is out there and who has it. And we are not seeing that ramp up of testing. There has been an increase in testing, but, you know, we're testing about 140,000, 150,000 people a day, whereas a lot of estimates are we need to be testing millions of people a day, and we're not building up that capacity right now, although weirdly enough, at the same time as we're not testing enough, we also have excess capacity at various labs because there is no national coordination to try to rationalize this process. So I fear that we are actually making a mistake uh, yet again uh, to compound the mistakes we've already made that have been so costly. Uh, but you know, to pick up, David, on your on your point about and what I wrote about, which is conservative irrationality, you know, I thought I had lost the ability to be amazed by what so-called conservatives have to say in the age of Trump, because it has been so appalling and so egregious these three plus years into the Trump era. But the last few months have just flabbergasted even me. And and again, my, uh, you know, my, my, uh, knowledge of, of right-wing depravity is pretty great, and so it's very hard to surprise me at this point. But, you know, listening to these so-called conservatives who have postured as pro-life advocates for decades now saying, well, we got to reopen the economy, and yeah, too bad if, you know, old people or people with underlying conditions, too bad if they have to die, but that's the cost of economic progress. That's basically the line that you're getting from a lot of people on the right. They're also engaging in uh, coronavirus trutherism, basically trying to suggest that the fatalities are not nearly as high as they actually are, including people who were once kind of respectable uh, figures on the right, like Brit Hume and others, and of course the entire cast of Fox News, uh, Rush Limbaugh and others, are all basically saying, oh, you know, it's no big deal, it's no worse than the flu, which is preposterous because COVID-19 is about to become the number one killer in America. It's on the verge of overtaking heart disease as, as the number one killer. And obviously, we've only kept the numbers as low as they are, bad as they are. I mean, 35,000 Americans dead in the space of a couple of months. It would be far, far worse 
if we didn't have this strict social distancing. But instead of drawing the conclusion that, yes, social distancing works and we need to keep people apart to keep the death rate down, the conclusion that these uh, irrational voices on the right are, are drawing, their conclusion is, oh, you know, why did we ever need social distancing in the first place? The whole threat is overblown. We're only going to lose only 60,000 people, which is like one normal flu season. So what's the big deal? I mean, it really, I mean, I, I realize it's hard to argue with people who deny basic scientific facts like global warming, but just their level of illogic and perversity uh, is even by their standards, I would say, has been off the charts the last couple of months. True. Uh, by the way, from now on, we will refer to you as the right-wing depravity correspondent of Deep State Radio. <laughs> That's um, a full-time job, David. <laughs> yeah, no, I know, but you're, you're, you're the expert. Ryan, when you talk about the timeline, you know, and we, 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 to use the lingo of the past couple of months, you search for flattening the curve. In New York, there seems to be perhaps a little flattening of the curve um, with regard to you know, new cases in the hospitals and, and, and deaths, although it's still pretty pretty serious situation. Um, but the one curve that doesn't seem to be flattening, and the timeline does not show this, any, any flattening, is the president's learning curve. You know, you would think at a certain point, somebody would come into him and say, Mr. President, you know, we said 35, it's going to be 60. We said 60, it's going to be 90. Uh, you know, your friend just died. Um, uh, the We're losing 22 million jobs in the month of March. We're about to have the biggest economic crisis ever. Um, you, you would think there would be a change, but there's no evidence of that, is there? The penny doesn't drop in the timeline thus far. Right. I think that that's a deep concern. Um, and in, in part because of, in some ways, putting together what David and Max have just said about um, his inability to learn and to filter out information that's inconvenient. So I do think that's about also the, what you had said as well, and um, is the danger that that portends for the next phase of this of when we open back up. Um, and, uh, you know, this is the week in which she's already retweeted the tweet about uh, firing Fauci. Um, you could also think about some of these uh, committees that he's creating about reopening the um, economy is a form of firing Fauci or demotion of the public health officials because they're not on the important committees uh, to decide that. So I do think that there's, um, it's, it's very worrisome and he's throwing things out. This is also the week in which he's, uh, you know, blamed the WHO because of its mistakes, of which there are some, uh, for sure, having cost lives. Uh, even in the very language and framework and analytic uh, framework that would have applied to him, uh, be devastating. So uh, I think he's still um, reacting, uh, as, as David was kind of saying, in a sense, uh, in, the mo in the hour, um, in the moment, uh, very self-protectively about his own identity um, and uh, trying to run this as a media relations issue rather than a public health one. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about this, this opening up and, and, and whether we're ready and how we're ready. Um, Lena, uh, Angela Merkel has announced that in the next couple of weeks, Germany is going to begin a slow reopening. She also gave um, one of these kind of press conferences that, that gives, you know, those of us here in the United States a bit of leader envy. 
because, you know, she, like Jacinda Ardern and a couple of other leaders have really done a great job, you know. Um, I think the leader in Ireland is a doctor who's actually gone back to work to start to help people, right? And, 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 and we don't have anything like that that here. But, you know, I was looking at the charts and I, I, I'm not going to read the, all these things off, but, you know, there are these live metrics. And when you look at, for instance, testing, the United States is testing about 10,000 per million of the population. But Spain is twice that. Italy is twice that. Germany is twice that. Um, Switzerland, Portugal are twice that. Um, there's some countries, the UAE is seven times that. Um, I, I, th I think uh, Iceland and the Faroe Islands are 10 times that level of testing. Uh, in terms of deaths um, per million in the population, we have about a, 100 deaths per million in the population right now. Um, but and, and there are places like Spain and Italy and France uh, uh, and the UK that are substantially higher than that. But Germany is at 47. Um, and, uh, you know, Canada's at 32. You know, we're, it's clear that you could do better and we're, we're not doing better. What does that tell you about what's likely to happen with this opening up? Yeah, well, I think this is back to our earlier point about the mistakes that are continuing to happen. Look, I don't, want to just always be, well, let's point fingers and talk about what should have been. I want to talk about what we should be doing moving forward. But that's what's concerning to me. I mean, basically every public health expert agrees that right now is too soon for us to be reopening. We want nothing more than to reopen, but we want to do that safely and in a way that's based on data and evidence. I think basically every public health expert also agrees what we need to have in place, which I would break down into three categories. One is this widespread testing, because unless we have testing, we just have no idea what we're working with. These communities that are saying they have zero infections, how do we know it's actually zero if we are not doing surveillance testing? I mean, we have new data coming out. As an example, in New York City, when they looked at the at pregnant women who were not there for any COVID reasons, they were there for labor and delivery, but they got surveillance testing. One in eight pregnant women tested positive who had no symptoms and were not there for anything related to coronavirus. I mean, that's crazy. That illustrates a level of community spread that we just have no way of picking up at the moment. So we need that widespread testing. Then second bucket is we need to have the public health infrastructure. If we're going to be moving to um, identification, tracing contacts, we have to have the individuals and the infrastructure necessary to do that, and we're not even close. And then the third is our healthcare system cannot be in crisis. We have to stabilize our healthcare system. We cannot be having these conversations about who gets a ventilator, whether healthcare workers have enough masks and gowns. We just can't have that be happening or else we're never going to get back to a place of even being able to reopen. I mean, I just think it's crazy that we know what it takes and we're nowhere near that point. And instead we're trying to come up with arbitrary deadlines and timetables when actually we should be navigating 
this backwards, right? We should be talking about what needs to be in place. How close are we to meeting these metrics? What are the capabilities that we have to develop? And where are we for developing them? And to the point about the press conferences, how much better would these press conferences be every day if instead of whatever they're currently, um, if President Trump has his experts talk about where we are with regard to these metrics and how far we are from reaching them and therefore what that illustrates in terms of our ability to move forward. I mean, that's the kind of, of communication and leadership that we really should be expecting. But unfortunately, we are nowhere near that right now. I'd like to get to that when I go to David and Max, but let me ask you a very, very quick follow-up question, Lena. The one thing we know, and you alluded to this, is the numbers are wrong. We, we know we don't know how many people have this. We know we don't know how many people have died of this. Um, we know because we're only testing 1% of the population, and we know because of cases such as the one that you've mentioned, where we have abnormally high rates of people dying at home. We have no abnormally high death rates overall. Uh, so something's going on. And it suggests that even the, the you know, egregiously high numbers we have are wrong. When you listen to this as a former senior public health official and as a doctor, what's the, what's the X factor in your head? Do you say, I mean, I know scientifically you have to say, I don't know. But, and, and of course, that's the right answer. But is it likely to be twice as high? Is this twice as big as it was or three times? Or, you know, just the average person needs to know that to make their own judgments. I mean, you're right. I don't know. Um, but I've seen numbers that are somewhere on the order of somewhere between 25 and 90% of infections or of people who have COVID-19 are asymptomatic and are currently not being detected. So we could be looking at numbers as high as tenfold the number of infections as we currently are reporting. I think that puts this into some kind of a context. Now let's talk about the political game here because David, I don't think any of us think that Donald Trump is acting based on science. He's not acting based on you know, good public health um, uh, uh, calculations. He, he's acting on a Trumpian, what's in it for me, um, assessment. And so when he says, I want to see everybody open up, even that is probably not his, you know, it's time to open up based on the numbers. It's, I um, want to be the person standing up for opening up I know the governors are not going to let it happen and the economy is going to tank and I can blame it on the governors. Well, remember when you think, when you describe Donald Trump's acting, what's in it for me, the me here is a person who inherited a fortune of half a billion dollars and completely squandered it. So he's not a good decision maker. So where he is now is he's, he's think, he is thinking very much about, um, yes, I want to open this up. Um, I want to save myself going into November. But it's it's a really ineffective plan, and uh, the, but the but the plan seems to be, and, and here it intersects with some of the things that Max was saying, but some are deeper and darker deficiencies in the Republican Party. That to the extent there's a plan, the plan looks like this: we're going to um, try to reopen the American economy beginning about May Day. We're going to use the lash of economic necessity to drive the bottom half or the bottom two thirds of the workforce back to work, whether it's safe or not. Uh, 
We are going to take the resulting casualties, which will number in, we hope, or they hope, um, the tens of thousands, the hundreds of thousands, but not the millions. Um, and anyway, most of the casualties would be people of color anyway, so who cares about them? They're not real Americans. Um, and we hope that we're going to have enough economic activity in the summer and early fall to get Trump and the Republican Senate through November, and then we'll worry about it. That's to the extent there's a real plan, that's a real plan. It's a plan for a lot of casualties in an attempt to get a medal for the general. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, I'm, I'm, I give, I, you blame Trump and I, I accept that, but I give you a little bit of the blame because, you know, your next book is called Trumpocalypse. And yes. when did you come up with this name and is this your fault? Uh, uh, I, I'm going to blame my publisher here, Eric Nelson. I'm going to throw him under the bus. Uh, the, the book um, uh, was was a very uh, meaty, um, policy dense plan for how you reestablish a working American economy and reassert American global leadership after the Trump era. And uh, Eric, who's a great marketing guy, said this is this is a little bit too much meat and potatoes, not enough dessert. Uh, you have to give a little bit more dessert. And he. Um, so we, we, we did some of the stuff that, that is more dessert-like, more exciting. And, and then he gave this, this title, Trumpocalypse. And I said, I, I don't know, Eric. That's, that seems a little inflammatory. Um, <laughs> a little over the top, right? A little over the top, but you know, it, it's his company. It's his money. Uh, so, so we did it. And, then, and now I feel like, like it's karma or like some superstitious dread. We said the thing and we got it. And, and to the credit of HarperCollins, um, as the book went forward, the book was written substantially pre the crisis, but they were able to call it back. So we delayed the book for three weeks and I rewrote the first quarter of it uh, with um, with an actual Trumpocalypse at hand. Um, but here's here's something that uh, needs to be said about the, both the word Trumpocalypse and, and my title, and, and maybe this is more generally useful. Um, we use the word apocalypse to mean calamity or catastrophe nuclear apocalypse, dead apocalypse. But that's literally in Greek, that is not what the word means. The word means literally um, to an uncovering, a revelation. Uh, an, an apocalypse is a moment of knowledge, not a moment of disaster. Um, in the prophetic literature of the Jews and Christians of the first century, the thing that, uh, that the reason that the conflation happens- I knew we'd end up there sooner or later. Is the thing that you were learning about what, what were the catastrophes to come, but the word literally means knowledge or unveiling. And I think we are all learning things about the capacity of our society, the weaknesses of our society, and how we make a better society. And that's what the book's about. Well, that's it's it's, it's timely, and look look forward to having it. Thank you, um, Max. Let me talk about an, to turn to you about another dimension that we've got. We've got about 15 minutes to go here, um, so I'll get through a few other topics fairly quickly. But this is a big one, right? Uh, five point something million more people uh, filed for unemployment today. 22 million people filed for unemployment in March, as I mentioned earlier. The St. Louis Fed predicts 47 million Americans will be unemployed by this crisis. Uh, J.P. Morgan predicts that the second quarter make show a contraction in the economy of 40%, something that has never happened in the history of the U.S. economy. Uh, Goldman Sachs more conservatively predicts a 6% contraction in the U.S. economy over the course of the year, um, which would be the worst in 75 years, second worst since the Great Depression. 
Nothing like this has ever happened with unemployment. But 140 million Americans are poor or low income. 40% of Americans have $400 in savings or less. Tens of millions of Americans are about to lose their uh, their health insurance in the middle of a public health crisis because it's tied to their jobs. Um, we have a, a, a plan, which is the worst of any developed country in the world, of trying to give $1,200 to a certain number of people in our society, a tiny fraction of those affected, and we're not even getting that money to them, and we're asking them to make it last for 10 weeks when most of the countries, countries like Germany and Canada and the UK, are giving people a percentage of their income. So it, it seems to me that we're on the verge of a social catastrophe that could produce rising crime rates, greater division. And of course, the communities that have been most hard hit by this are communities of color, of the Latin community most in New York State and, and African-American community after that. So, you know, how, to, how do we reconcile this public health crisis with the fact and you know that that over the next couple of months we are going to feel economic pain like this country has not felt since 1932. Well, obviously, we're living through a nightmare that I think that even the severest critics of Trump would have had a hard time imagining a few uh, months ago uh, that something like this has happened because you know for three plus years we were arguing that he was fraying the fabric fabric of American life. He was undermining our democracy, but the economy was still uh, buttressing him up, and the economy was still in, in pretty good shape, and we could argue well, that wasn't really his doing, but nevertheless, he was presiding over a growing economy. And you know, the suddenness with which we have gone from a relatively booming economy to a Great Depression is just head-spinning. It's hard to take it all in. It's hard to know what the full consequences are going to be, but clearly that points to the fact that this is not just a public health catastrophe. It's also an economic catastrophe. And, and Trump has uh, utterly failed on both fronts because, as you noted, I mean, some European countries actually have higher death rates than we do, uh, Spain and Italy in particular. Uh, but they are not seeing the same kind of economic catastrophe because they have been much more adept at, uh, at, at providing aid uh, that allows, that, that prevents the kind of mass unemployment that we are seeing in this country. And of course, the other piece of that puzzle is they also don't have uh, millions of people without health insurance, without health coverage. And I think what this crisis is really uncovering is it's really exposing a lot of the rot in American society that we've kind of been able to skate over uh, in, in years past, or at least most of us have, certainly not the most vulnerable members of our society, but most Americans have been able to skate over a lot of the cracks uh, in in our uh, in our uh, foundations of, of this country, and now all those cracks are becoming like the size of the Grand Canyon. They're being exposed brutally by this crisis. And, you know, basic lack of competent governance, lack of health coverage. Uh, you know, uh, uh, widening uh, income disparities, uh, rising homelessness. All these things that we have kind of pushed to the margin of our consciousness now is 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 front and center, and and this is you know Trump certainly has made the catastrophe much worse than it needed to be, 
Uh, but it's not all his doing. I mean, there is a lot of complicity on the part of other Republicans and, you know, the whole dysfunction of our political system, which I think has been driven primarily by the Fox Newsified right over the course of the last several decades. I think that is now what we're grappling with because for decades, you know, Republicans have talked about blowing up the government, about drowning it in a bathtub. And now we are seeing what that looks like. Uh, we're seeing the consequences of having a government that is unable to cope uh, with the worst crisis that we have faced in 70 plus years. So um, acknowledging all of that and acknowledging everything that we've said, we've got just under 10 minutes to go. Uh, and I'd like to turn to each of you and I'd like to pick up on something that uh, Lena just said, which was um, that it would be better to focus on what we can be doing and what we should be doing um, and to be a little prescriptive. But you can't possibly in two and a half or three minutes be prescriptive about everything. So I'd like you to zero in on something that you think um, might actually be renderable into action. In other words, I don't think we should say Donald Trump should get a clue because he's not going to get a clue. I don't think we should say Mitch McConnell should grow a heart because he's not going to grow a heart, right? So, you know, uh, governors are, are getting it done. Some mayors are getting it done. Individual people are getting it done. And I'd like to focus on, you know, among those, what could we do now to um, reduce the likely pain in the months ahead in any of these areas? Sort of two minutes from each of you, starting with Ryan. Um, I guess the low-hanging fruit is uh, testing, testing, testing. So it's also just building off of what Lena had said, uh, which is that that seems to be we have to scale up testing, and if we can't, don't do that, we can't reopen the economy in the way it has to happen. And just to say one thing in favor of some uh, conservative voices, uh, Senator Graham today said, uh, quote, we are struggling with testing at a large scale. You really can't go back to work until we have more tests, end quote. And he had said something similar at a certain point, put, trying to push back on Trump by saying, you have to listen, we have to all listen to the scientists and the medical professionals. So that to me is what Fauci has been pressing. And if it's understood that that is a condition for reopening, then hopefully that galvanizes action in that particular space. Interestingly on that, and you know, David and, and, and Max may want to comment on it when they get to it, but you know, the, the, the strange phenomenon that's come out of this is because of the abdication of the responsibility of the federal government, the states have had to step up. And if you look at um, the, even the, the today's you know, sort of marching orders for the states from the federal government, which are very detailed, except they say, it's all up to you. At the beginning, it says, the states are responsible for the testing. You know, the states are responsible for everything else. Um, and so, you know, for the federalists out there, the states, writers, this is kind of interesting. Anyway, Lena, what, what's your recommendation? Well, I'll build off of what, um, off of your question about the states, um, and go one step further and say that maybe there's something that individual municipalities can be doing themselves. As in, how interesting would it be if we have one city um, or one county or, or, or jurisdiction or a small state, let's say, that can actually roll out everything 
And let's have this be a test of sorts. So let's say that one city can implement widespread testing. Let's just focus all of our resources to this one place and see what it looks like to have widespread testing. What does the surveillance actually show us? Are we able to reopen schools? Um, maybe we do widespread testing so that we are testing every student and every teacher every week. Um, can we safely reopen schools? Do, let's implement this for a major business in that um, in, in that in that city and see what what it looks like. Let's put all of our resources for contact tracing into this one area to see can we actually move from mitigation to containment in this one locality. I think that's something that's actually doable. Um, I mean, it does require a tolerance of uncertainty and of experimentation by that city. But frankly, we're doing that kind of experiment anyway, just not in a thoughtful way. I mean, we have governors who are not putting in shelter-in-place orders, who are not asking people to stay at home. So why don't we actually do this thoughtfully and do the re a phased reopening in just one place, but with all the components that we know we need in order to be successful? Very smart. So create kind of bell cows, let them go out, do the test, see how it works, and learn from that. Since we, we seem to be immune to saying, oh, well, look how New Zealand did it, or look how Singapore did it, or look at, look, you know, look, look at, the, at the good cases there are. I think developing them here is a good idea. David? We're seeing through this crisis the worst of American society, as Max and you have said, but also the best. Um, the extraordinary dynamism of the American private sector, uh, the ability to take um, food supply chains. None of us knew this before, but we used to have two of them, one for uh, homes and one for restaurants and institutions. Uh, and we have a tremendous glut in the institutional supply chain and a tremendous shortage in the um, home and grocery market. And in a matter of weeks, the American private sector has retooled to move food from one chain to another, from essentially interstate highways to local road networks. And that's a tremendous achievement. The federal system has been a huge success. The best states have done so well, and not just those like California with sophisticated governance, but some states you wouldn't expect, like Ohio has been a real hero under a Republican governor, DeWine. I think we're also seeing the amazing capacities of American civil society. American society went into lockdown before anybody in authority told it to. Um, that if you look at data from Open Table or other sources of information about what decisions Americans were privately making, you can see that American society begins spontaneously to act about a week before governments, even the most forward governments, decide to act. And that's a tremendous strength. But what should we do going forward? The thing that is most on my mind is the importance of preserving um, true globalization, a world of free trade, a world without national barriers. Uh, we have been confronted by um, the, the, the true harm that is done to us by China being a rule breaker. Uh, that doesn't prove that every country needs to have its own rules that, and that America needs to make its own health supplies and the EU needs to make its own health supplies and Britain and Japan and Tonga and every country needs to have its own health capacity. But what we have learned instead is we have to deal with China's deficiencies. We have to create an international system that is better at constraining China and that forces China to live up to its standards. And that requires more free trade, more cooperation, more international institutions, not, not less. Um, and if, if, we can, if we can do that and make the Chinese state understand that um, made in China has now become a byword. Uh, you live 
You, you can't grow enough food to feed yourself. You live by importing food and selling products. Your products need to meet a higher standard of safety. Um, and when I say your products, I don't just mean the physical objects. I mean everything you put into the world. Um, so what I hope will come out of this and what I recommend is we need new global institutions for the age of pandemics. Last thought. We should see pandemics, terrible as they are, as a sign of the success of humanity in building a unified world. Um, thousands of years ago, hundreds of years ago, even a single century ago, we lived in a world of many different disease pools. We now live in a world of one disease pool, and that is an accomplishment, not a failure. And that accomplishment has a vulnerability, but it's not the people who created a world that had a, have a single disease pool have the ability and the know-how and the technology to create responses to that single disease pool, just as we had responses to our local disease pools. So we, we need to build a planet that works in the way that we built countries that works. True. Um, although we, we, have, we, have, we have had global pandemics before um, and, uh, and, and have you know, learned those lessons very slowly, apparently. Max, what's your recommendation? Well, I, rec you know, I agree with everything that everybody has said, in particular the need for vastly ramped up uh, testing and tracing in order to re reopen safely. But I would say the number one recommendation, practical recommendation I have is let's elect Joe Biden in November because there is no way this country can survive another four years of Donald Trump. Now, I used to say that. I meant that sort of metaphorically or referring to American democracy. But now I'm really worried about how many people will not survive another four years of Donald Trump in office? Because this coronavirus, this is only wave one. We're going to have more waves. We're going to have another wave probably in the winter. We can't have Donald Trump mishandling it, uh, you know, a few months from now, the way he's handled it, mishandled it in the past few months. And now the Democrats are coalescing around a sane, sensible, moderate nominee in Joe Biden. And I think it's imperative that everybody who understands how awful Donald Trump is has to get behind Joe Biden. We can't afford splinter candidates uh, like Justin Amash or, uh, or you know, somebody uh, on, on the left green side of the party. And Republicans, to the extent that there are any Republicans who have not utterly lost their, their senses in the Trump era, they need to get behind Joe Biden too. And in fact, that was my column uh, a day or so ago was saying, you know, I, I, I understand, I did not share, but I understand the excuses of Republicans about in 2016, why they felt they could not endorse uh, Hillary Clinton. Okay. I voted for Hillary, my first vote ever for a Democrat. I'm proud of having done that, but leave that aside. I get that in, in some ways, Hillary Clinton was politically toxic, but Joe Biden does not. He, there's no emails you can pin on the guy. Uh, he is somebody who can speak to to blue collar uh, workers because he comes from that background himself. Uh, he is no Bernie Sanders. He can't be tagged as a socialist. He's not gonna destroy American democracy. In fact, uh, he was vice president the last time that this country recovered from a massive recession, which by a strange coincidence also occurred uh, during a previous Republican administration. So, you know, if we're gonna get out of this mess, it has to be under Joe Biden's leadership. And if there are any Republicans who have any devotion to the country above the party, they have to get behind Joe Biden right now. And I'm thinking about, you know, everybody from George W. Bush on down, all the former cabinet members, all the former senators, congressmen. I would hope that some of the more moderate Republican governors 
who have done an excellent job during this this coronavirus epidemic and in states like Massachusetts and Maryland and Ohio. I would hope they would get behind Joe Biden. I would hope that some members of Congress would, starting with Senator Romney, but maybe maybe a few others. And I realize these may be pipe dreams, and I've had a lot of my illusions about the Republican Party shattered in the last you know three plus years. But this is a final chance for a few Republicans to redeem their reputations and to put patriotism above party because we literally cannot survive with Donald Trump as president. Well, there you have it from our right-wing depravity correspondent folks, proving once again that there is no zealot like a convert. Um, And uh, also, uh, I think, describing what is a practical reality, the politics of it aside, I, I would flag the point and lean up, you know, as I'm trying to wrap up here, if I'm wrong, tell me I'm wrong. But, you know, one of the things that lingers large for me is we are going through the first wave of this. We don't know what the second wave of this will look like. We don't know. There, there's some big questions about, you know, the, the antibodies that are created and, and whether it's going to be easy or hard to create a vaccine. Uh, and the cautionary tale before us all is that the great influenza of 1918, the first wave was fairly mild. It was the second wave that occurred in the fall that was more devastating. Lena, am I getting this right? Yeah, and um, we also have to think about all the other consequences as well, um, including the fact that people cannot get their health care, cannot get routine health care as a result of coronavirus now. And should there be a second wave, how long is that going to be um, until we can get back to some semblance of normality when it comes to our usual health care services too? Excellent point. Well, folks, I said these were four of the smartest people I know. They've, you know, they've demonstrated that once again over the course of this episode. Um, uh, I'm very proud of what we've been doing during this uh, outbreak. I think each and every episode that we've done has been, you know, above and beyond this week. Uh, we had a, a great episode, uh, and if you've missed these, you should go and listen to them with David Sanger. Um, and Michael Shear of the New York Times talking about their important breakthrough article over the weekend um, that talked about this this Trump timeline. Uh, we, we had our regular Monday episode where we really went into some depth of the bigger implications of this. Yesterday, I spoke to Representative Val Demings of Florida, who's on you know every Biden shortlist, uh, and talked about Florida and what's happening there. She was remarkable. This group is remarkable. I know what we've got coming next week also um, remarkable. Please join us for this. Uh, and starting, I think, uh, around May 1st, we're going to also offer to members um, uh, a, tr- some kind of live interactive Zoom-based conversations so people can pose questions as a, as a, as a new and additional feature, because nothing is more important now than um, knowledge. I didn't know David to refer to that as an apocalypse, but you know we're, we we need to invite the apocalypse, I guess, um, uh, in order to for everybody to make their own decisions properly, whether they pertain to their family or they pertain to national politics. So please join us for that, and please join me in thanking Ryan, of course, every week, and Le- Lena and and uh, David and Max. Uh, And thank you to all of you for joining us and do make every effort to stay safe. Bye-bye.